Blog Talk Radio. Great joy and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese Meditation Bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the wisest counsel and most fascinating people in the business community from all around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, your Hieronymus Bosch of business. And can you imagine one good reason why the former head of NASDAQ and the World Economic Forum Director USA and the financial advisor to Presidents Bush, Clinton, and Obama is running around the world trying to plant another trillion trees on this terrestrial orb? Well, the gentleman in question is Mr. Alfred Berkeley, and to paraphrase the immortal bard, thereby hangs a fascinating and profitable tale. Uh, Al is really a guiding voice in international financial realms. And in addition to the accomplishments just mentioned, he sits on 24 boards and he chairs Princeton Capital Management. But most importantly, Al is a gentleman who sees money as a tool to aid human progress and investment as a way to enrich both investor and the human community at large. And it was Al putting these beliefs into action, in fact, uh, such as his launching the United Nations Global Sustainability De- Development Fund that made him a unanimous selection for the Prometheus Social Enterprise Awards, for which he was recently honored. And we're going to hear about this amazing fund shortly, along with some refreshingly common-sense ways to approach putting your, your hard-won dollars to work in ways that are both proven and profitable. So whether you're seeking a way to blend both personal and financial values into your life or You've just, you're just interested in the creative side of international finance. Pull up your chair and join us at this feast of wisdom, all carefully cuisined to make your career thrive and your ventures flourish. Al, welcome back from your latest efforts on behalf of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And again, welcome back to the Art of the CEO radio show. Good to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Bart. Uh, Al, you followed markets of all types of domestic and and global for decades and so i i'm just wondering from your own experience let me ask must socially conscious investing be a choice between personal profit and personal values is putting my money to work for ways that benefit humanity is it does it demands sacrifice or is it really just more like opting for commodities versus common stock well, you know, Bart, you're touching on one of the really key interesting arguments about how do, how do we as a humanity fund the investments we need to keep the world safe for ourselves. Mm. The academics would tell you that if you limit the choice of what's available to be invested in, you're going to necessarily reduce your returns. We're right. trying hard to, and we're sort of uh, pragmatically experimenting with whether or not that's true. By the way, there are dozens of academic papers on both sides of this argument. But what we're doing <laughs> is sure we're, are. we are investing in companies that uh, are uh, purporting to uh, do, to follow, to implement one or more of the sustainable development goals in their regulatory mm-hmm. documents. In other words, legally committing themselves to do to do this. And then we're applying some environmental, social, and governance criteria, and then we're using old-fashioned investment uh, approaches to see if we can't put together a portfolio uh, that will prove or disprove this issue. So far, we are uh, producing results that are just just as good as the market, 
and are much better for the world in terms of uh, their social uh, responsibility. Well, I'm I'm really that I'm glad to hear that, and I'm uh, I'm really I'm really rooting for your side in in, in this in this argument. But uh, and, and speaking of socially conscious investing, I know that you're head of the management team for the United Nations Global Sustainable Index Institutes SCR 500 funds, which is truly a, a fiscal mouthful. So to help us kind of understand it, could you first explain what is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030, and, and what are the and what are the 17 specified goals aiming at? Well, you're um, you're raising a really interesting issue because the Millennial Development Goals that were introduced in the year 2000 by the United uh-huh. Nations and subscribed to by a lot of people around the world didn't really happen. They never mm. got traction. They never really happened. The common wisdom is that uh, it was the financial crisis of 2008-2009 that caused the Uh Millennial Development Goals to fail. That may not be the real reason, however. Uh The chief operating officer of the United Nations in Geneva, a guy named Michael Moeller, convened a working group of about 30 people as the 2015 deadline for the Millennial Development Goals was approaching, uh-huh. Said, how did we mess? How did we mess this up? How did we not get anything done? And it looks. And you were like on that. The, you were among that, right, Al? I was not, but I have a friend who, oh. uh, Roland Schatz, who uh, was very instrumental in in all of those proceedings, and as, I as a senior advisor to Moeller, not as a participant of one of, not as one of the thirty, but as one of the people who really created the working group. And he's okay, coached me on I'm these sorry. issues for the last three or four years, last four or five years, actually. Huh, wow. So what happened is it, looked, it looks like the mistake that was made with the Millennial Development Goals was to d- depend on nation states to get things done. And the United Nations... <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're, we're seeing a lot of that right now, but what, why, if, if not nation states, whom? Well, it turns out it's easy for a federal or national politician to promise things in the future and very difficult for them to fund it. As soon as they start uh-huh. funding things, they get into the, whatever the internecine fights are in their, local, in their particular country, in their local environment. So this right. time around, the United Nations has postulated a different set of actions, and that is specifically uh-huh. to engage at the city level. Cities are where... Uh-huh work really gets done around the world. Potholes get filled, sewers get developed, water gets, clean water gets distributed. So it's a much different approach. I think presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg would be glad to hear you say that, but go ahead. Well, he understands all this and has done a lot to make this happen. A way for your listeners to understand it is to think about public-private partnerships. We have got yeah. to find ways for the cities, the counties, the the, the uh, states, in our case, the nation itself, to work with the private enterprise in their uh, domain, in their jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and to make things actually happen and get them done. Another thing that's been done at this go-round, a lesson learned from the past, was to put uh-huh. bite-sized, attainable targets under each of the 17 goals. For example, under no oh, poverty... Okay. There would be there would be about ten more specific, more bite-sized, more doable goals. More they're not the goals themselves each have ten targets under them. So right. that's the that's the uh, 
two lessons of the Millennial Development Goals that have been incorporated in the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. Give me one or two examples of the – pick one of the 17 and give me one or two of the practical examples, just just so we can get an idea. um, Well, um, clean water, for example. Uh, Uh Clean water – clean water in a particular uh, city is going to have a different mm-hmm. implementation than any other city. It depends on what their, right, what their right. resources are, what their natural, geographic, and geological uh, blessings are, whether they're mm-hmm. a desert country, whether they're a uh, mountainous country, whether they're temperate, whether they're arctic, whether they're tropical. They're ju- there's just all of these different uh, nuances that are trying to be accounted for this time rather than having a one-size-fits-all uh, manifestation. Oh, okay. That, that, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That it, it seems so much more practical, but it also seems doable. I mean, I can I can look at this and say, all right, here uh, here in my Delta-oriented city, as opposed to my uh, desert desert quick port you know i I've, I've got as you say totally different things that that, that does that goes it, it it seems as if so, uh, a lot more practical thought has been put into 230 uh, the, the 2030 goals well i think that's right and um yeah. uh, what we're trying to do is and what UNGSII is trying to do is to watch what other people are doing look at see there's been a lot of people glomming onto the goal of gender equality. Okay, we don't need to do much there. Let's let's look at some of the goals where there's less uh, less of a herd instinct, less of a uh, uh, grouping of people around wanting to solve that goal, and see if we can put some energy into that. Specifically, what Roland Schatz has done, the guy I mentioned is the advisor to uh, to Michael Mueller. Right. Is he he and Michael Moeller have formed an independent uh, nonprofit called the Global Sustainability Index Institute to try to have a voice outside of the budgetary processes of the United Nations, which are just extremely political and extremely complex. Uh, to yeah, now, fund now that's it. Seemed to me like that was a very sharp move. What what's the the? Uh, it, but with that comes the idea that you have to raise your own money, don't you? I mean, you, you don't you don't get some of the, the fiscal aid that, that you might get. UNGSI does well. It raises its own money in the sense that it's uh, endorsed by the United Nations, but not funded by the United Nations. You know, there are right. about fifty three, fifty four, fifty five UN agencies. Uh, UNICEF is a good example. You get a UNICEF UNICEF envelope soliciting money for children's activities every year. That's an, a UN right. agency that's raising money directly from the public. Only a handful of the U.N. agencies are actually funded through the U.N. budget. And so what um, what Moeller and Schatz were doing was were saying, let's set up a uh, truth speaker, let's some, an organization that can call things as they see it uh, outside <laughs> of the United Nations. Uh, very difficult. Let me get this right. A truth, a truth seeker outside of the United Nations because – well, we won't say why, because all right. And, and, well, and from the, the, the politics of the yeah. well, the politics of the world are such that it's very difficult for the United Nations to criticize a member country. Uh, and yeah, yeah, there are 193 countries, and they've got different interests, and and uh, so 
many things go unsaid. Let me put it that way. Right. And the ability to have a uh, nonprofit headquartered in in uh, Luxembourg, I'm sorry, in Liechtenstein, uh, and able to raise money uh, and to to add weight, to add initiative, to add energy uh, to a particular SDG that needs a little additional oomph uh, is a very helpful process. What we've done oh, is yeah. to uh, advise them on how to solve this investment conundrum that you talked about earlier. Do you have to give right. a return in order to do good? We would say, no, we don't think you do. We're in the mm-hmm. in, we're siding with the academics who agree with that, and we're developing a portfolio chosen from the 500 largest public companies in the world uh, to uh, uh, include companies that are legally in their in their reporting documents committing to an SDG or more than one that are meeting certain uh, environmental, social, and governance standards and which are meeting the common sense of good investment criteria. So you've got this three-legged stool, the regulatory commitment, uh, the uh, environmental, social, and governance screen, and the investment screen. So, and that was, so you looked at the, the 500, the world's, uh, the top, uh, the global 500, and mm-hmm. you used those, your, your three-legged stool as, as uh, criteria, and from that you selected how many? 100, 169 currently. I see. Okay. And it changes uh, because it changes because different companies will commit uh, to uh, in their regulatory documents uh, as they get more involved. And then other companies will change their ES, their environmental, social, and governance criteria as they get criticized or not, uh, or not. And then, of course, the investment criteria change based on competition in that industry. Well, now, uh, so you've uh, you've got the it's it, I believe it's called the SCR 500 fund. Would that be is that correct? Yeah, it's, we were actually for the United States market. We're running it as separately managed accounts. In, uh, oh, in the I national see. market. Right. Uh, the, the, by the way, these are for accredited investors. Uh, uh, in the in the ID of the fund is for an accredited investor. Uh, in the United States, we can run a separately managed account for anybody. Okay, so if I if I were an accredited investor or I were a decision maker in a financial firm, um, just so I know, how might I get in touch with? Uh, you or, or, or would, how might I find about find, learn more about or, or perhaps even invest in the uh, CR500 fund? Well, if you Google Princeton Capital Management LLC, uh, you'll you'll come okay. to our website. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if you're an institution, uh, we'll we'll talk to you about investing through the European uh, European entity. If you're a global institution or outside the United States. If you're an institution in the United States, we'll talk to you about a separately managed account. Okay. Uh, uh, well, now, how have uh, how have you done? I have I have heard reports that you uh, you you mentioned that you are slightly beating the market, but I think you're, you're uh, it's it's modest. You've you've, you've got about two points above Standard and Poor, and thus far, am I right or wrong? Well, um, I actually am not quite sure where we are today but uh, I'd rather say it I'd rather say it in, that we are uh, equivalent to the market we're, we're as good as the market but we're giving a much better social impact in the holdings that we oh, have so if you're an investor who's interested 
if you're an investor who's interested in putting your money to work for these social causes, uh, these mm-hmm. sustainable development goals, then uh, we are, the early returns are that uh, we can make you at least as much money as the market makes and, uh, and have you uh, focusing that money on these SDG-committed companies. In other words, I want to be really careful here to say that we don't have a long enough record. We did. We have backcast, mathematically backcast to 2001, and we've got good results there. But, mm-hmm. but backcasting and the the real funds have been running for a year and a half or so, and uh, uh, they're doing fine and they're doing well from an SDG point of view. But I don't want to make claims about them because you can't predict the future in the market. Yes, well, heaven knows it's uh, the, today's market is like trying to invest in three queens, and uh, we. But we'll, we're going to talk a little more about that later. Uh, if uh, right now Al, uh, Al Berkeley is going to continue to reveal uh, some of the projects of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the fun, and the fund, uh, right after you and I take a brief sorbet from today's feast of wisdom and i allow me to offer you a few utensils for today's feast and the first utensil as i always do may i remind all of you hearing my voice that the good lord has gifted you with the title and privileges of chief executive officer of yourself and since that's really the most important position you'll ever hold in your career may i ask will this be the day that you laugh at yourself and share the joke with others Are you not strong enough to do that yet? The choice, my friend, is truly yours. And the second utensil, I can sense you yearning to steep your lips into a little laughter and taste a scriptural recitation from the 102 Best Business Quips book. So I am pulling this thing out with immense alacrity. And here we are. Uh, Okay, this one is uh, 87. 87 is it. The surest way to steer clear of the truth is to seek it with a survey. Do you strongly agree, don't B, don't give a damn, or C, strongly disagree? <laughs> what do you think, Al? Do those surveys uh, bent on finding better ways to seduce our money out of consumer pockets or get citizens' votes, do they come anywhere near veracity? I think every citizen needs to listen very carefully when people make generalizations that take in tens of millions of people's opinions. You'll get, in reality, you've got nuanced outliers there that uh, – don't fit that answer. It's too simple. <laughs> I think you're absolutely true. It's uh, the, just to me the whole idea of force fitting uh, opinions into complex, very complex issues with pre-crafted questions from which you're getting multiple guess answers. Uh, it, it's it's only a good form of ammunition for those uh, executives who've already got their minds made up. At any rate, if you smirked a bit over that quip, we have them literally by the books full. Just visit bartsbooks.com and pick up your copy of the 102 or the 101 Best Business Quips books, and your nearly refined joy will slather over your fellow wage slavers at work like Parmesan on pizza to the delight of all, <laughs> or, or so we'd have you believe. Uh, and as a third utensil, we sumptuously spoon to you the answer to last week's business quotation. That is, the name of the individual who said, I love it, the chief value of money is that one lives in a world in which it is highly overestimated. <laughs> I've got it. Al, what, is, is the value of money highly overestimated, Al? 
Yes, it is, and I'll give you an example. I had the privilege of having a new grandchild recently, and uh, you know, oh, wonderful! The, Congratulations. The, ma- the, ma- the magic of her birth had nothing to do with money, and doesn't ever. And uh, it just reminds you that life is much simpler in many ways, and the things that count are really your human relations. Oh. What a wonderful example! Thanks so much, Al. Oh, those. Uh, by the way, those words were spoken. Uh, that is the chief value of the uh, quotation. Words were spoken by none other than the razor tongue journalist and social critic Henry Lewis. That is better known as H.L. Mencken. Congratulations to all your winners, and stick with us because later on in the show, blurting your way, comes another enriching quotations. And if you're among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be and email it right off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com. And if you are correct, your knowledge will earn you a soul-stirring gift, freshly disemboweled from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And Alfred Berkeley will continue to lay out some proven and profitable and uncommonly sensible approaches to market investing right after I make to you the introduction of the company by whose good graces we're here today. And that firm is Prometheus Publishing, uh, inviting you to take a look at one of its offerings. It's given countless business folks some of those much-needed aha moments. Uh, And that insightful volume is entitled, So That's How They Do It. Tactics of Business Masters. And this book is one of my, my, my favorite book projects, actually, because of the readership. It was deliberately designed for those business folks that we at Bart's Books term the energized elite. And you know who you are. You're that individual who's really hunting for a satisfying career and uh, a, a boost to your venture. And you so much so that you not just want to hear some good idea, but by gosh, you're going to put your arms on the swivel chair and get up and seize that better tool. Well, and you're probably too bright, by the way, for some seven-step success template that is coming out. So instead, you want a smorgasbord of tactics from a wide array of business masters that you can grab and get the disciplines and the attitudes that are going to set your mind on fire. And if you are if you are one of the energized elite, you do please pick up so that's how they do it. And hopefully this will find you what you need to set as I say, to set your own career on fire. Carpe diem, my friend, you are indeed worth it. And now with utensils in hand, uh sit tight with open ears as Mr. Alfred Berkeley, Chair of Princeton Capital Management LLC, gives you some investment strategies on some of and helps you find some aha moments. And the first thing, uh Al, I you you've got a, a solid financial background uh with in so many ways. And here you are, uh I promised to answer this at the very beginning. Uh could you link your recent arboreal efforts uh and uh the idea about installing electric buses and planting trees? Uh why what are you uh, seeking to do with all of all of these efforts at this point? Well, um, Bart, I mentioned earlier that UNGSII is trying to uh, fill in where uh, other groups are not picking up on one or more of the SDGs. There are a lot of people interested in planting trees, and we're looking at where they're planting them and trying to develop mm. uh, develop abilities to fill in where other people are not active. 
That being said, the background on this is is that apparently, in, uh, before the Industrial Revolution, uh, there were about four trillion trees serving as the lungs of the earth, creating oxygen and purifying the air. Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. since the Industrial Revolution and the growth of population and the, and the Agricultural Revolution, apparently about a trillion trees have been cut. So there are now about four trillion trees on this little orbit, orb. And uh, you mean three bill, uh, three trillion now? Excuse me, three trillion. They're three trillion instead yeah, okay. of uh, four trillion. Excuse me, I misspoke. Right. Um, and uh, uh, there are a lot of efforts underway to replace that missing trillion trees. And we think it's a really interesting project. The buses is a different issue. Uh, As you know, many cities are uh, essentially, uh, from an aerosol point of view, diesel swamps. And the idea is is to use use electric buses to... uh, to clean the air by using uh, by using less diesel fuel, and there are some major metropolitan areas that we're focused on uh, trying to find funding for about 6,000 uh, electric buses uh, that will oh, uh, substantially clean the air in those cities and contribute to cleaning the air in the world. I think that's that's marvelous. I have seen in just from my own experience in the cities of Krakow, Poland. And Athens, Greece, they're terribly worried about their monuments being literally eroded by, as you so aptly put it, the, the diesel swamps and the fumes and so forth. And and, yeah. and this, that, that's frankly, Scarlet, just fuel. need not be. Right. Right. Uh, well, now I, I've, uh, I've heard you say uh, that uh, you've been turning, and you mentioned earlier, that you've been turning to uh, academics for uh, for some investment modeling and, and uh, selection strategies. And i got to say, Al, academia always seems to me to stand as a living testament that being uh, rich and being smart hold absolutely no correlation. But um, what, uh, what are you, uh, both personally and through uh, chairing Princeton Capital Management, is what, could you give us an example of, of some of the models that you've been studying and, and perhaps employing? Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, I think one of the hardest tasks, particularly for a money manager, but just for a person, is in the yeah. in this new environment we have where information's coming at you from a thousand different directions, is how do you think clearly? How do you know what's signal and what's noise? And and I think that the academic world has taken bits and pieces of the investment puzzle and added structure to that thinking and I've found it very useful in some of the specifics uh, that I have that I've enjoyed learning from and use in our investment process is to think about things from about 15 or 16 different academic frameworks. I won't go through them huh. all, but but some of them you would be familiar with. The first one I was introduced to uh, was the Boston Consulting Group's experience curve model, understanding what what the ability to produce the same product over and over again does to its cost over time. So I got fascinated oh, okay. by the by the Boston Consulting Group's approach to that. Lately, I've been uh, very interested in Clay Christensen's disruptive technologies model. I've also been interested in Bain and Company's models on uh, what they call the elements of value. What are the the pieces of value that a company needs to bring to its customer to satisfy that customer's needs? turns out that's very multidimensional. There's some 
some yeah. table stakes, yeah. like the product's got to work. You know, it's got to have a good reputation. It's got to have the ability to be maintained. But as you go up that buyer's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so to speak, you get into things like their ego and their risks and why are they why are they not willing to take a risk on a small new company and why are, why are some people not willing to take that risk and other people are that gets you into Jeff Moore's crossing the chasm type analysis uh, so right, there are about right. 15 or 18 of these analytical formats that I found very useful in my personal struggle to think clearly about all this information that's coming to us every day in every way well I I think I, I'm interested in and i've i've read some of these uh, uh structures uh, that you put up and i i think it's i think they have great value uh just to sort of set your mind uh to to see what's out there but but i've got to admit that depending on them entirely well i mean these structures the, these fellows sort of strike me as uh Systems gamblers in Las Vegas, they're trying to erect structures beneath us or amidst a tsunami of emotional marketing, which is gushing at us throughout the market all over. I mean, we live in a sea of, of product and, and financial world marketing. It's, it's got things like the watch-your-mouth game soaring to uh, – millions of paper profits before they even have a product we we've got people lining up for iPhones they know nothing about and they they're not it's it's that's all a matter of awareness and isn't that really kind of the big white elephant in the room that's that's directing our monies well i think you're right um i think that there is an awareness issue and i think that you're touching on the speculative cycles that go into uh new products being introduced in the market in sort of a pure play and picked up by by uh, short-term uh, speculators and, and uh, the venture capital community, which is sort of structured to be a little bit too short-term uh, most of the time. But, uh, you know, I think you're, you're exactly right. Well, what about uh, – you mentioned speculators, and I heard you say that, uh, that they, they that, that speculators who are not buying products or, or putting money in companies, they're they're, they're just traders, uh, but they make the majority, the vast majority of stock trades. Uh, are they running the market in a way that's that has an, a not level playing field? Well, I think that the uh, information available to a speculator is typically short-term information. It has to do with the supply and demand of other of trading interest. What we're looking for at Princeton Capital is the supply and demand of buyers and sellers for a company's products or services. We're, we're not okay. interested in, in the current ratio of buyers or sellers of the stock. We're interested in how that company's doing competitively, what its market share is, does it have a cost advantage. And, yes, the awareness that you talk to becomes a very important component and is really a little bit newer, uh, a, a newer factor since we've gone to so much digital communications. You know, uh, mm. a company can be a fabulous company, and if its website's unknown, the company's unknown. And so yeah. we're, trying, we're trying to hard to understand whether that is a fifth dimension of, competitive, of competition. You know, you used to have uh, four bases for competition. One was, was the product work. If there were two people who offered a product work, the basis of competition swift is it work reliably. 
if there were two vendors offering reliable products that worked, did what you wanted to do, the basis of competition slipped to convenience. If there were two companies that were offering, conveniently offering the ability to use a reliable product that did the job you wanted to do, then the, then the basis of competition slipped to price. I think this access issue that you've raised becomes the second one. It, you go from capability, does it work, uh, to does anybody know about it? And so you've got to add I this awareness, does anybody know about it, to your calculations as an investor. I, I no, I, I've, I've, my wife's husband has always said that uh, oh. if you build a better mousetrap, the world will not beat a path to your door if you don't give them your address and tell them that you're making mousetraps. But uh, you've said, That's right. I, I've already said that, that it's got to be among. You, you've got to have yourself, your, your product. I'm sorry, amongst the top three decision uh, considerations for the consumer, whether it's business or B2B or B2C, it doesn't matter, right? Yes, you've saying? got to. Uh, what you're trying, what every vendor is trying to do, is to be on what's called the short list of people that are being considered for purchase, and it matters. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Larry Ellison was launching Oracle originally, he published a checklist uh, where he had Oracle's features listed and the competitors' features listed, doing that homework for the potential buyer who probably did, was ah. unaware of the of the of the subtleties of relational databases which were hot new products mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Huh. And it obviously it obviously worked. You've said something that I I've that really hit home with me and I I'd, I'd like to share it. And you said that for the investor needs to approach the market with humility. What do you mean by that? Well, it just comes from my life. I, partly, you mentioned I've been on over 25 boards in my life, and, and I learned something from each of them, and, and that is how little I know. And uh, the interesting <laughs> and, and, and dangerous part of the, of the current uh, fascination with the market is people look to the reported numbers as if they are predictive of the future. What's predictive of the future is what the competitor is doing to get a better product at a lower cost than yours. And that uh, is a lesson that uh, investors need to really understand. I think it's important to think clearly. A lot of this academic frameworks that we we use are efforts to think clearly. But I also think that we need to uh, be very humble in the way we approach the market and understand what we don't know. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, I think knowing what you don't know as well uh, is as valuable a tool as knowing what you do. Al, this is uh, I. This has been absolutely fabulous. I, I only have about 314 more questions for you, but uh, <laughs> alas, we seem to be there's there's somebody sitting at a booth about go, dra- dragging her thumb across my neck. So uh, I'm afraid we're we're coming to the end of our time, and uh, I do hope that we can perhaps have another show uh, sometime with perhaps you and several of the uh, Princeton Capital Management team on to uh, help bring a little common sense to the world of investing. Uh, could perhaps we seduce you back for something like that? We would love to do that. My partners, uh, Joe Cadigal and Hugh Fitzpatrick and Karen Keeler, would love to uh, love to play. All right. Well, we'll put that down for the future. And in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on today, Al. It's been just marvelous. It's great fun for me. Thank you, Bart. Okay. 
And uh, as we round out today's feast, I am Bart Jackson, your curator of business wisdom, leaving you with today's business quotation. And that is, who was it who said, America is a country of great inventors, and its greatest inventors are newspaper men. <laughs> uh, and as a hint, uh, this uh, inventor, this author uh, in and inventor created the tool by which these dubiously truthful newspaper men could phone in their stories. And remember, if you know the author of this quote, just write that author's name down as you believe him or her to be. Send it right off to info at bartsbooks.com, I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com, to win an absolutely life-changing gift from the Dungeons of Bart's Books bookstore. And be sure to tune in next week because The Art of the CEO is coming up to its 300th episode. Yes, we are celebrating this with a special show that we've gathered the most wise, most hilarious, <laughs> and most helpful business knowledge. So get set to laugh and bring your notebook to jot down some lightning strike moments from the advice of business masters. And as a parting shot, in the words of my wife's husband, the easiest and most effective way to gather a great number of people behind your vision is to make sure that that vision obviously benefits a great number of people. And to you, gleefully sharing our feast, I hope that you've enjoyed The Art of the CEO uh, as much as Alan and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. And remember, you may download this on all our shows at theartoftheceo.com. And finally, to you, who've honored us with your time. May I say, as always, it has been a privilege, and I thank you.